Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. This week, we're going to talk about Trey Sermon. Sermon got cut this afternoon by the San Francisco 49ers, which isn't much of a surprise. We're going to review his short career with the 49ers, what unfolded, why it unfolded the way it did, as well as what we can expect from him moving forward and where some potential landing spots might be. Now, of course, you might be listening to this and he already got added by another team by that point. But, you know, hopefully you'll get a chance to hear this and maybe one of the teams that I pick might work out. And we'll talk about what some of the obstacles and opportunities there are for Sermon ahead for him to be the player that I projected him to be based on the film study I did from him um, a couple years ago. And so in addition to that, I want to announce that I'm going to be doing a film and data podcast series this year with Adam Harstead at Football Guys. He and I are going to be doing that as a part of the RSP podcast series every other week. Adam is a fantastic um, analyst who does really thought-provoking work, and I think he and I come from foot come to football from different perspectives, um, but enjoy having the conversations we do. So I'm really looking forward to him being a part of the RSP cast this season. And then I'm also going to be doing some podcasts early in the season thus far with Felix Sharp at Camp- Campus to Canton and Laurie Fitzgerald at TD Wire. They're both going to join me and we're going to do some of the quick game work there. Um, and you'll understand, you know, I, I'm really fans of what they do in terms of Laurie does fantastic film study and she's a you know she's a very informative presence on twitter and the work that she does on td wire is is really good and i've had her on rsp film rooms in the past where she's done a great job talking about players and she's a former player herself even emery hunt who's on ross tucker's podcast used to cover her as a running back for a women's tackle football um or league and you know she was a good player so it's going to be fun to to catch up with Lori and do work with Lori and Felix is a, I believe a former um, defensive back at Western Michigan. Um, he's a practicing lawyer and he is a part of campus to Canton, which is a fantasy football league format where you combine college and pro fantasy. Um, and basically your college players migrate over to your pro team. So he's going to offer a lot of valuable info about players. I haven't even started studying yet. So it's going to be a fun time for, um, you know, these podcasts are going to be coming up during the season. Felix and I are going to be recording actually Thursday night. Lori and I are going to be recording um, early next week. And Adam and I are going to be recording in the middle of next week. So look forward to those things. And, of course, if you want to go deep with, you know, dynasty players or even for your redraft leagues with projections um, or just you want to scout skill talent, Remember, Bengals rookie Jamar Chase, he went deep on the league last year. He averaged 18 yards per catch. Number one player on my board. The rookie scouting portfolio has been helping fantasy managers go deep with rookies since 2006. It's a two-in-one fantasy-focused draft guide and football scouting reference. I cover over 150 rookies at those skill positions. You get post-draft rankings, cheat sheets with tiers, post-draft ADP analysis and sweet spot analysis, combined three-year draft rankings, meaning that they were the past three years of classes, and I update them three times during the year. You get positional skill analysis and the most in-depth player profiles available. 
and with analysis that has touted early, middle, and late round gems like Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Travis Kelsey, Nick Chubb, Justin Jefferson, A.J. Brown, Cooper Cup, and Jamar Chase. Download the 2022 RSP, and you too can go deep on your league. And of course, I offer the projections and dynasty rankings. Every dynasty, every conceivable skill player um, projected in a spreadsheet available on spread in spreadsheet or PDF form, as well as long build and um, win now cheat sheets. And those are updated monthly through December. And then one time, um, you know, next year in either May or June to kick off the season to give you a little bit of a head start before you subscribe again for twenty four ninety five for the year. You get that. They're separate products. Um, they dovetail very nicely together. But if you want one or the other, you get that choice as well. So let's get on to a player that hasn't worked out for me that I was higher on than most and so far, and that's Trey Sermon. And when you look at Sermon, you know, post-draft, I was very high on him because I thought the fact that that the 49ers traded up to get him, that they thought that they were going to have a really good fit with him within their system. And when I saw them draft Trey Lance earlier, I figured that they're going to run a lot more zone read in that offense, at least in the near future, within a year or two, because Lance has you know good running ability. And if you could have Sermon being that cutback runner inside, kind of that Devonta Freeman type of player that um, Kyle Shanahan had in his Atlanta system, that maybe this was the kind of a lesson learned type of thing, an evolution of what maybe Kyle Shanahan had learned during his tenure as an uh, offensive coordinator. But, you know, and that was what gave me optimism. And it was optimism basically over initial pessimism because my pre-draft RSP had listed San Francisco as the absolute worst possible fit for Trey Sermon. And the reason is, is that he's more of a cutback runner who presses the line and tries to manipulate linebackers and defenders who, with their leverage on blockers and find lanes by patiently working towards there and not hitting the hole extremely hard. He, you know, it's more about, you know, pressing and cutting back. And with that kind of decision-making, that's not really the fit of what Kyle Shanahan's system's about. I thought that might have changed because, as we'll see about, you know, when you look at the the back that Kyle Shanahan really coveted in Atlanta, it was Tevin Coleman. He coveted Coleman so much that he tried to force Coleman into the lineup early and soon discovered that Coleman, even though he was an outside zone runner at Indiana, he wasn't a very sophisticated decision maker. And basically by midseason, you could see that they had to actually create gap plays for Coleman to hit the crease hard because they needed gap plays are more about letting the blockers do the work and the diagnostics and the runner actually doing more of the job of hitting the crease as hard as possible. Don't think meat, just give it the gas. That's basically what an you know, a lot of what they do on toss and outside zone, there is some opportunity for advanced play to certainly bounce and cut back and make decision-making. But when you have a very strong offensive line and you can create holes right up front and you have a good fullback, you, you know, everything's set up with your tight end 
your your receivers, and you can create those creases. They want speed in and through that hole. So Shanahan loved a guy like Coleman. And if you remember, he also brought Jarek McKinnon in as a free agent early in his coaching career to San Francisco because he, again, another player who was more about speed than about patience and cutbacks and manipulation. Now, it didn't work out for Coleman early on because Atlanta had a strong offensive line, but when Coleman started to falter in that respect, the coaching staff, and I'm not saying this is a fact, it's from what I've observed, but from what I observed, it looked like the coaching staff overruled Shanahan a bit and said, listen, Devonta Freeman's our best runner. He fits the best in what we can do. He gives us more diversity diversification we can use Coleman in certain situations but you gotta kind of hit the brake a little bit on trying to ramrod Coleman into this offense we're doing well with the Devonta Freeman and Freeman had his best season that year um and that offensive line was good and Coleman never really turned into a thing because really not just injuries but his decision making was never great it took him a while to become competent as a decision maker the best hand-picked player at running back that Mike that Kyle Shanahan has had has been Raheem Mostert. Raheem Mostert has that speed that Shanahan coveted. He'd hit a crease decisively in outside zone and toss that Shanahan wanted, but he also had the nuance to really create when needed. And he could do it in a way with that speed that Shanahan, you know, as more of a system oriented guy and West Coast offensive coaches tend to err on system over player, meaning that there's, they would rather rant, force a player to, to adjust to the system than take a player who could be a game-changing um, individual for the team and tweak the system to make the most out of that player. And so there's going to be times that coaches in West Coast offenses, and I've, I've heard this complaint from time to time, is that coaches can err on the point of that the teams looks at their locker room and sees a player in there and goes, this guy should be on our field. He should be starting. He should be playing. But the coach would rather go with the veteran who doesn't have the same athletic ability, the same creativity, maybe the same certain same, or a higher level of skill sets that they could leverage to, to a, a real advantage for game changing plays, but they don't want to, they don't want to change the system even a little bit to accommodate that. And I think that that's where, you know, you saw that somewhat with his receiving receiver play decisions. Um, and I think you see that played out with what he did with some of the backs. That's why he would pick a guy like McKinnon or Coleman, which was like, they just simply will do hit, try and hit the hole as fast and hard as possible. So when you think about that with Shanahan, the, the three backs that he really handpicked, as you know, free agents to target, two of them were below average decision makers, and Mostert was really a, a you know a low end guy who surprised. So, you know, even think about the the nickname Drano, the one given to Eli Mitchell, his nickname for the team because he hits the hole so quick and hard. There's kind of an unintended pejorative context for this, which is. Mitchell doesn't have great decision-making or footwork when forced away from the design of the play. And you can see that when he has to cha make changes of direction, he takes too much space or he's a beat late with it. And you can see that while he was productive from a fantasy standpoint last year, his efficiency as a player wasn't always strong. 
And the fact that they added in Debo Samuel into the mix tells you, again, that they wanted another player who could run, who had speed, who could, you know, just be a more simplistic decision maker that could help with that offense. Um, still, so when you look at Sermon and how that fits in, you know, Sermon is more of a cutback runner, like we said, press, cut, really take, you know, try and manipulate a little bit more like a Devonta Freeman would be. Freeman also wasn't a super fast player. He was quicker than fast, had good contact balance, good cutback ability. Sermon had that. But in an offense like the 49ers where it was like, listen, just get outside as fast as possible and hit that hole as decisively as possible. When you've been spending as many years as Sermon had running a different way that has been successful and is successful in other offensive types, well, it's hard to break those habits because you're playing to the speed of instinct. And so, you know, it's different than being instinctive. Sermon has learned enough that when he reads linebacker keys or defensive lineman keys or a safety a certain way, he automatically is thinking, these are the solutions I have. And he's drilled those solutions enough to try and make cutbacks. So when I watched him this summer, it was very clear. And I talked about this with Jay Moyer as well, because um, we looked at the tape and I saw that there was a clip that a local, I believe a local beat writer you know, made a clip of him again, of Sermon against the Vikings and was saying that, you know, Sermon wasn't as decisive as he should be. He's getting knocked backwards a lot. And the truth is that on the surface, that's true. He wasn't as decisive as he needed to be. He was getting knocked backwards. There was no juice to the hole. It's not that because he isn't quick enough. It's not that he isn't a good decision maker. It's that he wasn't a good fit as a decision maker for this particular offense. And the reason being is that he would see cutbacks. And I watched the tape. I watched him in situations where he uh, the, he stopped for a brief moment to try and make a cutback, realized that that's not what he was there asking him to do and that he went forward and he didn't have quite as much burst and, his decisiveness and wasn't as decisive because his brain was getting in the way. He had already drilled these potentials for cutbacks. And there were some potential cutbacks there for him to take that may not have been ideal but he was he the decision making he had is logical just in a different context of what the offense asked in a different offense it would have been probably fine you know and the reason he's getting pushed backwards well you know some of that was interesting to me like cuz i saw some analysis where defensive tackles were pushing him backwards and well that kind of what happens when you meet a division a defensive tackle head on in the hole there are very few running backs who actually win consistently against defensive tackles. Or if you're you know, catching a ball in open space, breaking back to the quarterback, and you, um, and you have to stop and turn upfield, and a defensive back hits and wraps you flush, you're, you're probably going to go backwards. You know, that's not, some of the stuff was kind of more of a piling on of like, let me tell you why I don't like this player, as opposed to like logical, um, football-oriented analysis that's in the truth of the game, which is, you know, where defenders, when defenders hit you, what actually happens and where they hit you and where they have the advantage and what's a realistic or unrealistic expectation that you would expect from a ball carrier. So, you know, Sermon 
Sermon certainly, you could see, was questioning himself as a runner, trying to do what they asked him to do, but trying to work his way into their methodology of what they want from a runner. And what they want is just hit the crease hard. Very little cutback. Um, you, you know, they want speed. And so he worked on some of those things with Dalvin Cook. But, you know, you can work on those things in the offseason. But if you've spent a lot of time doing it a different way, it may take a little bit more time. And that's likely what happened there. So, you know, at the end of the day, they got, you know, um, they got Tyrion Davis-Price, who's looking pretty good. They've got Jordan Mason, another late-round player I liked in terms of his ability to catch the football. He's looking pretty good as a reserve. Um, you know, Mason Price will probably play some special teams for them. Um, he does have, um, you know, the receiving skills. He's probably a cheaper option, you know, because he was a UDFA. So, or at least a seventh-round pick. I know it was either a very late pick or a UDFA. So, you know, financially it made sense to get rid of, of Sermon at this point. And I think Sermon probably will want to be out of there as well. Now, here's the question is, what now with Trey Sermon? Is this a good thing for him? It's a good thing for him to get a fresh start. I definitely think that's it. Does that mean that he's going to magically rise to what, you know, my valuation of his talent is? No, definitely not. You know, um, because there's a few things that you have to consider. One is that um, the the situation hurt his fantasy value. Um, being a fourth round pick, I believe that's what he was, was a third or fourth round pick. That's good for the team that you're with. But when you're a mid-round pick and you don't make the roster in year two and you don't really even start or contribute in year one, most coaches, they talk to other coaches. So they're going to they're gonna look at that and say, well, Kyle may have some nice things to say about Sermon. He, Kyle might even say he's not a good fit for what we did. But it may all, you may also hear, well, he had a lot of issues that he had to work on. But the coaches may not look at that and really analytically tease that out and go, well, if we look at the film, we had a good grade on him in college. Because they... The coaches and scouts, some organizations do a good job of communication, but some teams may not look at what, not say, let's pull up the scouting report and see what they had to say. Or they may look at that and weigh that, but they may weigh the coach a little bit more. And if the coaching staff says, you know, listen, he was, you know, he had a lot of issues. He wasn't decisive. Um, he wasn't, he didn't show burst. Well, you know, if you're Andy Reid, and you're used to taking late chances on late round running backs and getting guys who do well, you might look at that and go, yeah, but Kyle runs this type of system. And what Kyle's saying is he wants a, he wants a Tevin Coleman clone. He wants a Jarek McKinnon, a Raheem, Raheem Moster clone. And so him saying that I'm going to take it with a grain of salt. What my scouts are saying is this is the kind of back that he is. And that would fit with our system. And we could get a lot out of potentially get enough out of him that he'd be valuable for us to add. Now, places where I think that he could be added, Pittsburgh, Carolina, Houston, Tennessee, and Green Bay to me are all options with a good mix of short-term and long-term value. First of all, Pittsburgh. You know, Jalen Warren got, you know, earned the the backup role. I'm sure Warren had a good camp. 
He's a quick runner. He can catch the ball. He's got a little Maurice Jones drew of a physical profile to him in terms of build. Um, I still think that Trey Sermon could be a nice fit there as a backup and maybe work his way into becoming the, the direct backup to Najee Harris. And if Harris breaks down, Sermon could be a, a nice fit for a Steelers team that I think I would bet actually ha gave him Sermon a serious look um, last year pre-draft. Um, I think that he can do a good job working inside for them. He's a reliable cat pass receiver. Um, and, you know, Pittsburgh isn't going to lean as much on getting outside. I mean, you consider Warren. Warren's a good example of a back that if you're looking for an outside presence, that's really not his game as much as it is staying inside. So Pittsburgh would be a good fit. Um, Carolina, listen, Chuba Hubbard has a lot of speed. Christian McCaffrey obviously has a lot of speed. But if you're looking for a runner who can create a little bit more, kind of the way like Mike Davis did during his big season with McCaffrey out, Sermon can give you some of that. You know, a little bit more of a cutback guy, a little tougher presence between the tackles if Deonta Foreman doesn't work out as well as they hoped. Um, I would That would be the least favorite of my situations, but Carolina could possibly use an upgrade to that room. Houston, you know, Rex Burkhead is pretty old. They got rid of Marlon Mack. Um, I think that Houston wouldn't be a bad fit for him. Um, you know, obviously Damian Pierce looks really good, so it wouldn't be a starter thing right off the bat, and it might never emerge as anything more as a, as a reserve in that system. But if Damian Pierce gets hurt, he's a young enough player that if Sermon shows out and plays well, that could make it an interesting situation. I'd add New Orleans to the mix. Mark Ingram's pretty up there in age. Alvin Kamara, his season, you know, could be in jeopardy at some certain point if the legal um, maneuverings of his legal team don't work out all that well. Um, you know, he may play the full year, but they've got to be thinking we need another running back. Tony Jones is a is a backup. You know, Dwayne Washington's a good special teams player with a lot of athletic ability, but never really a great decision maker. They run a lot inside. You know, they that's something that they do a good job with. And Trey Sermon could be an interesting fit there. And I would say Tennessee. Dontrell Hilliard played well. He's playing well in the preseason. They have Hassan Haskins, who they've spent a little bit of draft capital on. But Haskins is, I would say, lacks... Lacks the burst Sermon does. Not as good of a cutback runner. Good receiver, good blocker, high effort player. Fun player to root for. But Sermon could be an upgrade there too. And then Green Bay. Listen, Aaron Jones signed an extension. They've got, um, you know, they've got A.J. Dillon. Great one-two punch. But, you know, injuries can happen quickly. And if they want to maintain a one-two punch, well, Kylan Hill's still coming back from an injury. The only two backs on the bat, the only two backs they had on the depth chart were Jones and Dylan, at least at this point. So if they sign someone, Sermon could be in the market for that. So those are some teams that I think of, you know, right away. And there's more that probably could fit. I mean, um, that would that could be possible fits for him. But those are the ones that I think short term and long term. But you can see that there's no real clear long term path to playing time without a major injury. There was going to need to be a major injury to a player for him to get his shot. And here's why. He's going to be labeled a backup, as I said, due to what San Francisco 
um, what happened in San Francisco and coaches talking and labeling the way they do. I'm going to give you a great example of Cedric Pierman. Cedric Pierman was a running back out of Virginia. I just talked to Eric Stoner about him. And he, and it's funny. Pierman was a guy who made it to the Senior Bowl. Um, he didn't get... He got... Um, I think he got drafted late or didn't get drafted. And he wound up on a team in Baltimore where Ray Rice was emerging into a force that summer. And Willis McGahee was still the incumbent starter. So they cut him. He bounced through Detroit. Detroit really didn't know what they had. He bounced through Cleveland and Detroit in a summer. They just He, he really didn't even get a chance to, to see the field all that much. And he wound up in Cincinnati. And he stuck in Cincinnati and became a Pro Bowl caliber special teams player. But every preseason, not every, but most preseasons, I would see them use him late in the game as part of the reserves, and he would break off a run with that 4-3, low 4-3 level speed. He'd break lots of tackles with that 216-pound frame. He'd catch the ball well. He could pass protect. And the... For years, that would happen. And I would just go, well, he's not going to get that chance because he got labeled a special teams guy early. And that's exactly what happened. And the proven validating that point was Jay Gruden. Jay Gruden was the coach of the Cincinnati Bengals in one year. They had enough injuries to their depth chart that they put Cedric Pierman in. And he had, uh, I believe, a pair of strong games as both a runner and receiver. And the media asked, Jay Gruden after the game about Sermon. I'm not Sermon, about Pierman. And he said, we really didn't know what we had in Cedric Pierman as a runner. They really didn't know. Pierman had been with that roster at least three to four years, I believe, when that question was asked. But they really didn't know. And I remember asking some scouts, how does a head coach, or a team for that matter, not really know what they have from a running back if he's been there for four, three or four or five years. How does that happen? Is that incompetence or is there something organizational that I don't understand? And it was explained to me that really what happens is that players who arrive on teams as late round guys, free agents, waiver wire material, futures contracts, things like that, they're kind of in a cast, like a class system. And those guys are just trying to make their way onto the roster and make a team without, you know, there are a lot of teams that kind of even regard them as like second-class citizens in terms of how they interact with them. I mean, I'm not saying they react, they interact with them poorly, but they, but they certainly don't, they're not encouraged as much maybe to communicate in certain ways. Like a good example was, I believe it was Emmanuel Acho talking on um, a talk show I caught once and talking about the Deshaun Watson case. And he was talking about trying to get massages, being a, a low-end um, roster hopeful player when he got cut from Cleveland and he went to um, Philadelphia. And he, you know, he didn't have a massage therapist and he was afraid to ask the coaches, the coaching staff and training staff to get one because he was a low-round player. And it was explained to him that, you know, he didn't want to get yelled at for asking for them to to provide certain things to him. 
And it seemed outlandish, but there are some teams that are that way, that they're not that welcoming. Whereas Chad Spann told me, like, the Pittsburgh Steelers, in contrast, when he was a free agent there, like, everyone introduced themselves, shook his hand, explained to them that they were glad for him making the team, for being a part of the team. And this is, and they, they, they all, all the veterans tried to help him and become a better player. And the coaching staff seemed invested in him. And even if he didn't stay there long term, he said it was the best organization he had been with based on how they treated even late round players. And, you know, he, he, he talked about Peyton Manning working with him in his first, um, summer in Indianapolis and how that contrasted with some of his other stops at that time. Um, you know, Tampa Bay, he talked, and I can say this now cause it's a long time after, but in Tampa Bay and Raheem Mostert's time, he said he was kind of relieved to be gone from there. If I'm paraphrasing it right, because basically Raheem Mostert, they started strong and then the team just started partying after that. And Raheem Mostert was partying with the players. You know, which is why he's really hasn't gotten a really. It took him a while to get an opportunity to work his way back up the ladder a bit. Um, you know, he was with the Jets and the Texans as well, but when the, the team that stood out for him was Pittsburgh. And so, when I share this with you about you know how teams relate to to late round players, well, you know, getting back to the pyramid story, when they relate. You know, sometimes you don't want to make waves. You just kind of want to work your way up because they treat players in that fashion. So if he was labeled, if other coaches said, well, he's a he's a reserve type. You know, he can play special teams. He's, he's fast. He can tackle. He doesn't seem to mind contact. He's a tough player. And if, they, if that's kind of what's being said and he does well on special teams, then he just gets labeled special teams over and over again. And they're not going to pay much attention to him even if he's running the ball, you know, late in preseason games, you know, some coaches other will see something and be able to maybe make a point here and there. But there are other coaches who may just be too consumed with other priorities that they look at a guy like Pierman and go, well, you know, it's preseason, whatever. And also with running back, you don't really know what you have. Even Kyle Shanahan said this. You don't really know what you have in terms of fit for your team with a running back until you see him play in a game, in a game format. You know, you can see him in practice. And then when the game happens, because of the fact that there's actual hitting and collisions and all-out play at a high level of speed, that's when you see the decision-making capacity and agility and tackle-breaking and toughness um, all mixed into a player and how that all works out on the field. So with Sermon, and you know, a guy like Pierman, when they asked, you know, we'll go getting back one last thing about Pierman. When they asked him, we didn't know what we had. Now you want to kind of understand why. You understand that they just kind of wrote him off as a special teams guy. And it's a shame because they might have had a better player. And and when people say, well, that that's probably unlikely. But you think Raheem Mostert, you think Boston Scott, um, you know, Priest Holmes. There were a lot of players who were undrafted that people probably wrote off as special teams fodder and then work their way after going to multiple teams to becoming really good starting quality players. So there's a chance for Sermon, but he's going to have to overcome how coaches are, you know, and how they look at that. The second thing is on Sermon, and it's the might be the biggest thing. His confidence could really be diminished, especially if he begins questioning his decision making. 
because he had to change how he was running to try and fit this system. And when, as I talk about a lot with running back play, there's a distinction between playing instinctively and playing to the speed of instinct. Being instinctive, relying solely on your instincts, means that you haven't really practiced or refined things. You're just kind of going off the cuff on it. Playing to the speed of instinct, what I mean with that is that you actually practice footwork maneuvers. You look at the tape. You study blocking schemes. You practice with the visualization or actual um, drills in mind to to make decision make to to practice certain decision making scenarios whether the guard has good or bad leverage on this particular gap run or this particular zone run or whether there's a run blitz up the middle at the exchange point um, or whether there's outside penetration at the exchange point or whether a linebacker is on his heels or on his toes you know in the hole as you're entering the a gap you know, these different types of decision-making contexts will demand different types of footwork and different types of pacing um, and different ways of setting up the run within the context of the blocking scheme and those defender scenarios. And when you practice those things enough and you can do it instantaneously at the moment you I, that you can identify things quickly and then respond to it with the correct solution that quickly, that's playing to the speed of instinct, but it required practice. It required film study. It required preparation. And so that takes time to change that speed of instinct. And that's maybe what he was trying to do that caused him to struggle. And he may begin questioning himself because a lot of these backs, they've prepared with the speed of instinct type of practice, but maybe not as systematically as you would expect. You know, when I talk about it, it sounds like they go, you know, it sounds like I'm talking about a running back school or a trainer where they go, this is what you're going to do. But there are a lot of times that the best backs emerge because they've been in a stable scenario and environment where they could, they could basically learn these things to develop the speed of instinct and it works out well for them. Where backs who maybe change and go to a different system struggle a little bit more and then their confidence diminishes because they don't have a system systematic way of working and developing to maximize what they can do. If Sermon can systematically, um, you know, revert back to what he did best with a team that asks him to do what he does best, it might work out. If his confidence is shot because he's been in a system where he's disappointed and he's been trying to do something that he's not very good at, and then he's now he's at the point of overthinking things. It might require him to regain confidence to change that methodology. And that may happen or it may never happen. So there's a real palpable trap door that his career never gets off the ground. Um, so, you know, he's either going to need an injury to prove that he's more than reserve. He's going to have to regain his confidence. And he's going to have to find a team that where he has a shot to be the number three early on and work his way up to being the backup um, and being a, or at least be in a committee if the backup gets hurt or I mean, if the starter gets hurt. So it's possible. I mean, Khalil Herbert was third string when he entered the Buccaneers game, number one ranked defense against the run, I believe at that time and outplayed Damian Harris Williams, who was a coveted free agent for the bears last year. 
outplayed him in the first half and became the starter until David Montgomery came back. So it's possible. But, uh, but you know, based on what happened, you know, my recommendation for Sermon is if you're in a deep league and you have him, you're not going to get anything back for him. And if you have the room and you need, you need to just see if you have the room to hold on to a player like him, yeah, hold on to him to see where he goes. You know, if you're thinking about trying to buy cheaply on him, I probably wouldn't buy low on him. Um, mainly because you, unless it's just a pick that you know is a throwaway pick, you know, the odds are still probably against him. Even if I value his talent, you know, you're going to have to see where he lands and what that looks like. Um, so, you know, the, the safest thing is, you know, I know a lot of people come and ask me questions like this because they're kind of looking for that magic pill of like, do you know something that's going to help me have an advantage to add him? And the answer is no, nobody does. I don't. I cannot line the... I cannot line you the obstacles and the opportunities and the talents of the player. And that's the best that I can give you at this point, you know, um, at this, you know, with where he's at, you know, it's unfortunate. I didn't get, it's kind of funny. I wanted to get sermon in a lot of leagues. I couldn't get sermon in a lot of leagues. I don't have sermon in any of my fantasy leagues. And that wasn't by choice. I wanted him. I even tried to trade for him last year. Um, couldn't get him. So, you know, my shot of getting him will probably be now. Um, but I will, I wouldn't highly recommend going after him until you see where the landing spot is. And even then it's going to be a low round pick and have low expectations for him. And we will take it on a scenario by scenario moment, you know, um, kind of thing, you know, if he lands in Tennessee, if, he plays well enough by mid-October. Next thing we know, he's listed as the second back on the depth chart, and he's getting playing time to spell Derrick Henry. Well, that might be reason to start making trades for him, considering that maybe Henry, you know, if Henry gets hurt or Henry starts to wind down, that Sermon's valued enough that they see something in him. That could be a scenario like that. Or Pittsburgh, where... You know, but even then you're looking at, you got Najee Harris, you know, who's a young, he's a young back and you don't have much of an offensive line. Um, but still you might want to take some late round stabs at him. But if it was Tennessee, you might look at that in a different way. Um, it, so, you know, we'll look at it on a case by case, scenario by scenario basis and just do, do go from there. So hopefully that answers your questions about what I think about Trey Sermon. Um, I, you know, purely as a talent outside of fantasy prognostications, I didn't see anything with him that bothered me as a player. What bothered me was that his fit just didn't turn out to be a good one. I thought in San Francisco that with them adding Trey Lance, he'd get to be an inside presence for that team and they would use him a little bit more as an inside runner. When that when I watched him last year, I heard lots of criticisms about him. They were the same criticisms I heard people give me that were in the same school of thought about saying that Nick Chubb just didn't look good in the preseason, that, um, that Le'Veon Bell didn't look like he had a lot of juice and that he would never be a good starting running back in the NFL in year one. 
Um, they were saying that. Or David Montgomery didn't have enough juice and looked like a backup running back. I remember hearing all those things. And from people that you know have high profiles, former players, high-end fantasy analysts, um, you know, and I don't listen to that because I know what I see and I know how I study players. And that doesn't mean that Sermon's going to buck the buck the system there. But it does mean to me that I'm, it hasn't changed my valuation of him. Because from what I've seen, I know what he can do if as long as his confidence isn't really ruined from the experience he had in San Francisco. Again, he's a young man. These types of things can happen. Um, and or if he's just not labeled a reserve and not really given an opportunity to truly compete for playing time. So, you know, some real obstacles there, but the valuation remains the same. And, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, you know, and that's, uh, you know, I'm rooting for him and I hope that it can happen and then he gets that opportunity. Um, but, you know, if I'm recommending from a fantasy perspective, you know, it's it's not necessarily dead in the water, but it's getting kind of close. Got to say that there's a little bit of there's a little bit of hope here, but we'll see where he lands. Thanks again for listening. Um, I'll be doing a podcast tomorrow with Felix Sharp uh, from Campus to Canton, doing um, doing a quick game with him. That should be a lot of fun. And uh, you know, you guys have a good week.